0: Kind of looking downstream, what do we see? Coming past that point. So let's bring us over this way a little bit.
1: Last year, reporter Boyce Upholt completed a thousand-mile paddle of the lower Mississippi River in a handmade canoe. But this wasn't a leisurely float. Exercise
2: extreme caution when outdoors during such strong winds.
1: Boyce had to contend with dangerous weather, and he also had to confront some of his own personal fears.
0: And I believe death was in our midst last night.
1: That story, coming up on this episode of The Overstory, Sierra Club's podcast where we hear from changemakers, storytellers, people who help us see the world in a different light and from a new angle.
3: Natural soundscape has had a healing component to my life that I don't think I could have got otherwise.
1: This episode also features an interview I did with a guy named Bernie Krause. He's an audio engineer who started off his career in studios recording bands like the Rolling Stones and The Doors. But then he left the studio one day to record in Muir Woods, and he never turned back. When I turned on that recorder and heard the sound, it changed my life. And we head to Virginia to talk with John and Ruby Laurie. Their community stands to be changed by the Atlantic Coast Pipeline. It's a controversial project that would pump fracked natural gas from the mountains of West Virginia to the farmlands of North Carolina.
2: I don't want to see... Our little creeks and our springs destroyed by this proposed compressor station.
1: That's this time on The Overstory. The mighty Mississippi River. It's one of the most storied bodies of water in the
2: country. Down the great valley. 2,500 miles from Minnesota, carrying every rivulet and brook, creek and rill, carrying all the rivers that run down two-thirds the continent, the Mississippi runs to the Gulf.
1: The one-time frontier is today a commercial and industrial thoroughfare. And for some people, it's also a place of adventure. For writer Boyce Upholt, it was a wilderness to explore and escape into. When he hit the river for a six-week expedition, he found himself in desperate need of what Thoreau called the tonic of wildness. Here's a story.
0: One of the most important jobs with the captain is to look out for the the crew and make sure that you're doing everything you can to make things as easy as possible for all of the paddlers in the boat.
4: That's the voice of John Rusky. He's one of the best known river guides in America. We're sitting along with the rest of our expedition team in a 30-foot canoe that John built by hand as we float down the Mississippi River. There's nothing around but willow trees and the complex surface of the water.
0: So you look across the face of the water, you see the ripply, 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 and then all of a sudden it changes. There's a, a, a flat part.
4: This was spring 2017, and we were on a 1,000-mile journey from St. Louis to the Gulf of Mexico. So
0: Wherever there's a uh, change in water motion, pay attention to it.
4: John founded the first-ever guiding service on the lower Mississippi in 1998. He called it the Quapaw Canoe Company. Now, almost 20 years later, he was celebrating another accomplishment. He'd recently finished River Gator, his mile-by-mile paddler's guide to
0: this waterway. Oh, boy, what would you do? Yeah, let's just stay steady for now. Look At ease! Let's float and let him do his thing. Keep us steered now. Keep us steered. Uh, you see that boil pushing out?
4: John talks about the Mississippi as the wilderness within. That's because it's surrounded by cities and farmlands, but it remains lush and beautiful. White sand beaches, sycamores and willow trees, deer and coyote and beaver and eagles
0: looks like he is going as fast as he can He's trying to of that slow
4: on. My father had died eight months before this trip. He was a traveler, a scientist, an environmentalist. He was always looking for meaning and for wonder. He was always trying to take better care of this world. For me, the trip was an attempt to live up to his example. But I found the trip was hard, physically hard. My muscles strained, my hands turned numb from all those hours clutching the paddle. It was mentally hard, too. I found myself sour and short-tempered. Maybe that's because I was thinking too much about this river's history. We built up dikes and levees, laid down concrete retaining walls, all with dire consequences on the river's ecology. It's selfish. We try to protect our own land from flooding, but in doing so, we make the river less of itself. The weather didn't help me. That spring was wind blasted. Again and again, we were stuck on islands, unable to leave due to dangerous gusts. We'd stay in these storm camps, as we called them, for nights at a time. One afternoon, in one of those storm camps, we heard a loud creaking bang. A tree had fallen and landed on an empty tent. Had its occupant been inside, he probably would be dead. But we pressed downstream, long, hard, 50-mile days, Trying to beat the weather, trying to get to our end goal, trying to reach the Gulf of Mexico. Just days after that tree, we turned on the radio to hear a grim sounding warning. Exercise extreme caution when outdoors during such strong winds, and be
0: especially aware of older trees. From cloud to ground, lightning is occurring with this storm. Lightning can strike ten miles away from a thunderstorm. Seek a safe shelter inside a building
4: vehicle. That night the storms continued. At some point, foggy with sleep, I heard someone calling out to John. Bring a knife, the voice said. Another tree had fallen atop another tent, and this time, someone was inside. The occupant was trapped and needed to be cut free, though she wasn't hurt. I lay on my back, watching the flare of lightning and listening to the smashing rain. A bit later, I heard voices returning to camp and received reassurance that everyone was fine. But the next morning, John had sharp words for me. His voice was thin and angry, a tone I'd never heard before. Where were you last night, he asked. Why didn't you get up and help? I didn't have a good answer. When he spoke to
0: our whole crew, he was gentler and a more contemplative mood. And I believe death was in our midst last night. And we narrowly really avoided it by inches. And that's a great gift to uh, be able to, uh, to stand on that edge and look on the other side and wake up the next morning and continue life as you know. it.
4: So we ended the trip. It was a hard ending. The weather had been a test, our last test, and a test that I failed. It turns out that I was just as selfish as the rest of America. I chose my own security over that of my crew. When I got home, I thought a lot about wildness. I had figured it worked like a magic potion. Just walk out into it and you become your best self. I learned, though, that this medicine works differently. The river showed me who I was. It was up to me to become that better self. That made me think about my father, too. To follow in his footsteps required more than going on an adventure. It required real work.
5: On three. One, two, three. One, two, three.
4: So, six months later, when John relaunched another journey from that point where we had given up, I made sure I was there, a part of this new crew. It turned out to be a beautiful autumn week, sunny and warm with no rain and little wind. Finally, we made it. We reached the edge of the continent. But as I stood there, looking at the breaking waves, I realized the real accomplishment had happened long before. I had already found the wilderness within. For The Overstory, I'm Boyce Upple.
1: To read Boyce's full article, go to our website, sierramagazine.org. Now, some advice on sustainable living from our own advice columnist, Mr. Green. Today, Tom in San Francisco, ask about the most eco-friendly way to clean out your pantry.
5: Hello, uh, it's Mr. Green here in all his glory.
6: Uh, hello, Mr. Green. This is Tom calling from San Francisco.
5: Oh, Good to hear from you.
6: Good to hear from you. I, I've got a question for you. I, I'm a professional organizer. And my clients, they're often asking me to purge the expired food items from their pantries, canned goods, bottled stuff, and jars. I'm wondering the most eco-friendly way of disposing of these items. I know I can leave them unopened, and if I do that, I can't put them in the recycling bin. I think about pouring things down the drain, but, you know, I can't clog up our sewer systems and stuff like that. And if I put them in a the regular trash bin, things that are recyclable don't get recycled. So I'm kind of in a dilemma of what the best thing is for the situation.
5: You're a professional organizer. What exactly do you do on this job? That sounds interesting.
6: (laughs) Well, you know, in in many cases, I'm helping people clear out their houses because they're preparing for a move or or perhaps, unfortunately, someone has passed away and just everything has to come out of the house.
5: Oh, I see.
6: I am in this situation a lot where I have to get rid of items and I don't know where to, to put them.
5: Well, I would recommend opening the can, dumping the stuff out into a compost bin or some other place where that food matter can get recycled. And then, then recycle the cans in your uh, regular recycling bin. Now, a problem that I see here is the expiration date that appears on the cans. Yeah. You can actually exceed that expiration date in other words, if it says January 1st, 1979, that's probably a little too late. But if it's a couple years from now, you can probably still use the food. Something like 20% of the waste in this country is food, food that's just tossed out. And it's often tossed out either before its expiration date or or not that long thereafter, when it's still quite edible. And uh, I think anything you can do to work with that problem would be very good.
6: Yeah, I agree. So I, I sometimes have a situation where I have, you know, excessive amount of oils, greases, baking grease, and stuff like that, and I'm wondering what I should do in situations like this, these kinds of materials.
5: I would think that you would have to take the grease to a specific recycler that handles that sort of material. That's the, I would certainly not pour it down the drain because that can really mess up a septic system or a sewer system quite badly, so you don't want to pour it in there. And and if you need any incentive to prevent doing that, just think of this uh, fatberg in London. I believe it was 130 tons of fat that was trapped under the city of London in one of their ancient
6: sewers. I saw a picture of it online, and I oh my didn't god, anywhere yeah. near that thing.
5: Yeah, I would definitely contact the recycling folks in San Francisco and find out. What you can do with the with the excess oil and grease. The last thing I would like to see is a is a is a fatberg in San Francisco. And it would be awful to <laughs> hold you responsible for that fatberg. bird. <laughs> yeah. Thanks a lot, Tom.
6: Thank you. I'm, I've been reading your column for years. That really great opportunity so to talk to you.
5: Send me another question sometime.
6: I will. I've got a hundred for you. Okay. Great. Well, thank you. Bye bye. Bye.
5: That was Bob Shildren, our
1: own Mister Green, our advice column for Sustainable Living. To ask your question, go online, sierramagazine.org. John and Ruby Laurie live in Buckingham County, Virginia, in a town called Union Hill. It's a predominantly African-American community where Dominion Energy plans to build something called a compressor station as part of the proposed Atlantic Coast Pipeline. A compressor station is like basically this giant engine that pumps gas through these really long natural gas pipelines. In this case, the proposed pipeline would have only three compressor stations, one at each end and one in the middle, where Ruby and John live. In January of 2019, the state of Virginia's Air Pollution Control Board approved construction of the compressor station. In this interview, which was recorded before that decision, Ruby and John talk about why they think their community was chosen for this station and what it means to them.
2: My name is Ruby Laurie. I live in the beautiful town of Buckingham. Uh, Green when we have rain. Very quiet. That's what I like. And I'm originally from California, and I came here with my husband back in 2003. My name is John W. Laurie. And uh, I'm originally from here, Laurie Lane, less than 1,000 yards from here. That's where I grew up. We knew all the neighbors, and we spent a lot of time in the woods walking and scouting. We knew where a lot of the creeks and the springs were. We were adventuresome in a way. I still think about it now. And that's why I don't want to see our little creeks and our springs destroyed by this proposed compressor station. It was back in the latter part of 2014 when we found out about it. Since that time, we've found more and more information as to the effect that they have on the communities and the people that's living close by. We're dealing with environmental injustice because here in Union Hill community is predominant black. They anticipated choosing this one in a predominant black area because they anticipate least resistance. But they have received more resistance than uh, they had anticipated. I'm not just going to sit down and just roll over and let them walk over us. You've worked all your lives, especially the people that live here, have worked all their lives to have this property to hand it down to their children and to their grandchildren. We have a heritage here also. We have uh, African-American graves. We have- Slave uh, uh, graves around. And uh, not too long ago, we found one there, a slave cemetery, probably about a mile and a half away. I look at those grave sites, And I can imagine the hell those people went through to make someone else rich, slave labor. Throughout life, always been some questions unanswered in my mind and always ponder things. Why is this condition like this? Why do some think that they are so superior, and others so inferior.
1: Although the compressor station was approved, the pipeline's not a done deal yet. A federal court has put on hold all construction on the Atlantic Coast Pipeline. John, Ruby, and the others there on Union Hill, they're still fighting. Back in the 1960s, Bernie Krause spent most of his time in music recording studios, working as an electronic musician and an audio engineer for bands. You probably heard of some of them. The Stones, The Doors, Van Morrison. Then one day, Bernie went into Muir Woods National Monument with his recorder, and he kind of never left. When I turned on that recorder and heard the sound, it changed my life. And I decided
3: right then and there that was what I was going to do, if I could figure out a way to do it.
1: From that moment on, Bernie ditched the studio and the synthesizer and started making recordings and music from wild nature, first for sound design in movies like Apocalypse Now, and then for musical compositions, and for a growing archive that's preserving the natural sounds of places that are quickly changing or even becoming extinct. Bernie's a fascinating guy. He's like this walking encyclopedia of the sounds of wild nature. He's recorded wild nature in places all around the world, from Costa Rica to California to Kenya, and it was really amazing to get to go to his home in Northern California and spend a morning talking to him. Here's a little bit of our conversation. Did you grow up spending time outside? No. Where'd grew, you grow up? I grew
3: up in Detroit and New York. My parents were terrified of animals. We never had one. We had a had a goldfish once, it didn't last very long. Um, so I grew up terrified of the natural world and animals in general. And I decided when I went into Muir Woods that day that I survived just fine and uh, dedicated the rest of my life to doing that. And also, Natural Soundscape, uh, more than anything, has had a healing component to my life that I don't think I could have got otherwise, much more than music. I have a terrible case of ADHD well, I could only hold still for like one minute at first without making a lot of noise, uh, scratching myself or moving around or shuffling my feet or poking at insects and stuff like that. So I didn't have a way of, of calming down until I realized that I was making a lot of noise on these tapes and I had to spend a lot of time editing the noise out. So I started off with maybe one minute of silence, and then I could do two, and then I moved up to five, and then ten, and then a whole reel of tape. I could hold still for a whole reel of tape. That was amazing to me.
1: So it started out, it sounds as as kind of a personal endeavor, an artistic endeavor, but then eventually it becomes a real scientific endeavor.
3: When recording of natural sound first started in Germany, the model was always based on single individual sounds. There's a library at Cornell, a very large library based on that model. You could go out into the field and abstract these birds from the context of the sound around them and just get single individual birds and have these large libraries of individual sounds decontextualized. Well, when you fragment the natural world that way, you can never put it back together again because the birds have different dialects for each habitat that, that they're in. I mean, if you hear a white-crowned sparrow from Alaska, it's very different from the white-crowned sparrow. You're, You're in Golden Gate Park in San Francisco. As a musician, I was hearing this thing as a whole orchestra rather than individual sounds taken out of context. When I went out to record in Africa, I heard these organizations of sound. The frogs were in one niche, the birds were in another, the hyenas were in another, the elephants in another. Each of them had established their own frequency niche. When one stopped vocalizing, another would come in and fill in that part of the frequency spectrum. It's really pretty remarkable.
1: This is the biophony, and the biophony is...
3: And biophony is the collective sound that's created by all vocal organisms in a given habitat at one time. These natural sounds. And I exclude humans because humans have created our own signal chorus, which I call the anthropophony, human-created sound. This is a recording uh, that I made in... The Amazon, uh, just north of Manaus, I was recording the biophony when a, a military jet flew very low overhead. It caused the insects and the uh, and the frogs that were vocalizing as part of that biophony to become still.
1: So we're really, with our constant racket, we're really crowding out some of the noises of the natural world.
3: Yes, and uh, we're doing it in many ways, not only with the noise that we generate, but also uh, with issues around global warming, um, habitat destruction. These habitats are gone, no longer... Can you hear any of the sounds in these habitats? Are they altogether silent, or they've been so radically uh, changed by uh, human endeavor uh, that the soundscape, the biophony, can no longer be heard in any of its original form.
1: So you've been doing this basically now 50 years. So you're gathering all these, these hours, but then all of a sudden you start to create a, enough of a library, enough of a compendium, that you kind of then have a baseline. You have... Really before before and after, how many of the places you started recording fifty years ago have changed?
3: So I have five thousand hours of material, different habitats, marine and terrestrial, from all over the world, and fully fifty percent of that now comes from habitats that no longer exist they're either ex- we 're not talking about individual animals now sure but I mean, places in one thousand nine hundred and eighty eight, I was recording in the Sierras in Lincoln Meadow up near Yuba Pass and we were told that there would be no environmental impact from a new model that they were that they were using called selective logging, taking out a tree here and there. And so I went. I said, "Fine, let me record, if you don't mind, and I just want to record before and after." And they said, "No problem. There won't be any issue." So in 1988, in June of 1988, I went out and recorded in Lincoln Meadow, and captured the soundscape at that particular spot in time.
1: All right, let's listen up. Here's the before. This is the before.
3: A year later, I came back and uh, recorded in the same spot, same time of year. B- to the eye, you couldn't see a tree or a stick out of place. And here's what it sounded like a year later. what i found out later was that the logging company did a sneaky thing which they do often that what is visible to the human eye in other words like about 200 yards of trees were left standing but beyond that 200 yards they clear cut it
4: yeah
1: you mentioned that it takes longer today to capture the same amount of biophony as it used to, I don't know, let's say 30, 40 years. Why, why is that? It's, just, it's again, because it's, too, it's there's more human noises? When I first began in
3: 1968, it used to take me 10 hours to get one hour of usable material for a program. Now it takes me at least 1,000 hours, and in many cases twice that, to get one hour of usable material because of all the human noise, because habitats are not as rich-sounding, they're not as dense and diverse as they were, and if I want to get the recording of a habitat, I have to spend a lot of time there. Do you think
1: we're sort of a society just becoming deaf to the natural world?
3: I think we're tone deaf. Uh, We're a visual culture. Almost all the language that we have to describe the world around us, the physical world around us, comes from a visual perspective. Is almost none It comes from an acoustic perspective. And I'm trying to change that.
1: I love your line. You say, you point out, you know, everybody says a picture's worth a thousand words, but a soundscape's worth a thousand pictures.
3: Sure. What does that mean? Sound gives us a sense of place, if it's recorded right, that nothing else can. No picture is going to, is going to remind you of a place as much as a soundscape does. When I listen to these soundscapes, and I've got over a thousand of them, the soundscape of the desert is so different from a soundscape of, say, you know, Alaska or a marine environment or a place in in Africa where we recorded mountain gorillas or something else. They all stand out as being really unique, and you always hear something different. It always takes you back to that place, and you're always experiencing another part of that place that you never heard before, every time you hear it, because physically you're different. You're emotionally different. Your state is different. And and so you perceive different things out of that sound that you never would have got from a picture. And I just think that that's a really good analogy and why sound is so important.
1: For someone who's listening to The Overstory right now, Who's not an audio engineer is not a bioacoustician. There are ways, right now, with our phones, right. I mean, what would you recommend for someone who, say, wanted to take uh, uh, to, to to capture the soundscape of their backyard bird feeder or the national or regional park that they love? Presumably, lots of people can do this now. Do it, and what you'll find is
3: you'll find out how much noise there is in your environment. Because I always, when I, when I go out and work with kids in schools. I give them um, an an assignment to go out and record an American robin. And sure enough, there's a a lawnmower in the background or a motorcycle going by or a bus or car, plane flying overhead. And I say, that's really nice recording. But I also hear these other sounds, uh, and they really disturb me. I just want to hear a robin. And when they get how much noise, they begin to tune their ears differently to the world around them. And that's what I try to get people to do. That's the whole objective of this work.
1: And that's not just tuning your ears. That's really tuning your whole perspective. No question
3: about it, yeah.
1: Bernie Krause, thank you so much for talking to us. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. That was Bernie Krause. You can listen to more of Bernie's soundscapes at wildsanctuary.com. And now we'll leave you with one final field recording. This is Sugarloaf Mountain in Napa County, California. The Overstory is produced by Josephine Holtzman and Isaac Kestenbaum at Future Projects Media with help from Daniel Roth. Our theme music is by Jeff Bradsky. Alison Kegel has been our editorial fellow. We're really going to miss her, and we wish her all the best. The clip you heard from John and Ruby Laurie was recorded as part of a storytelling project produced here at the Sierra Club called The Land I Trust. You can find more about it at sc.org stories. Next time on The Overstory... We visit coastal Maine to learn how scientists there are intervening to help centuries-old tree species in a changing climate. And we talk to Paul Hawken, the activist and entrepreneur, about his new book, Drawdown. I'm Jason Mark, and you've been listening to The Overstory.